This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Taylor Riggs and I have been dancing all day to the sound of bank earnings since very early uh, this morning. Since they all started uh, rolling out, and it's been interesting to watch the market digest them, listen to the calls, compare numbers. This is really the first look at earnings, and certainly bank earnings widely anticipated. So let's get into it. Arnold Kakuta is banking and credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's here with Taylor and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Ken Leon, equity analyst over at CFRA Research, is joining us on the phone from New York City. So Ken, I want to start with you. What's your big takeaway here? If I have it right, you've got a buy on JP Morgan, a sell on Wells Fargo. How did that play through for you today? After the sell-off of the bank stocks in the market, uh, results actually were pretty good. We had a, a beat for JP Morgan and Citigroup. Wells Fargo was a miss. Seasonally, the third quarter is the weakest quarter. Um, the concerns related to macroeconomic um, are obviously still a wall of worry for these banks. Uh, but overall, I would say that they're well positioned for the fourth quarter uh, for stronger results and into 2019, uh, particularly as it relates to loan growth, loan quality, uh, additionally, a rebound in the capital markets. Um, the investment banking at large was weak uh, with tepid performance in M&A um, after a, a record first half of the year. I want to get into more of the loan growth and the loan quality, but quickly, Ken, can you explain for us a little bit sort of why we're seeing the share price reaction today? Is it because things are okay and they are, but but they're not good enough? I mean, why are we seeing sort of some of the declines, even though, like you said, things are okay? So, so if we bring the drivers to a broader measure, you know, top-line growth or, or net revenue was low single-digit. Profitability, I don't think any analyst is significantly raising their earnings estimates off of Q3. Um, you know, so again, there was really nothing to get too excited about the banks uh, as it relates to that. They're also, as stocks, still not clean total return vehicles. They will be in the next two years. And what I mean by that is there's very significant dividend growth and buybacks happening, but an investor cannot look at these like a utility or consumer staple and say, I'm getting a 25 3% yield, um, and banks are just getting there after 10 years kind of clawing their way back from the financial crisis. So, Arnold, come on in here, because one of the other elements we want to make sure we touch on is the regional banks, and specifically PNC was the name that everybody was looking at uh, this morning. Stock getting hit pretty hard. What's underneath that? Uh, well, I think, you know, it's, it's, they've got a really high-quality problem where, um, you know, they trade at a very high multiple on the equity side, kind of close to the two-times tangible book. I think there's a lot of expectations going in. And, uh, you know, I think the two places where their concerns are are 
uh, one, expenses, and two is uh, loan growth. So let's talk about loan growth. Um, you know, any bank can hit their loan growth numbers if they can, you know, you know, lower their standards and just extend loans to whoever. But, you know, PNC is really known as, as the one who's really cautious. You know, they, they have their metrics that they need to hit or, or, or you know, the, 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 to, to make a loan. So, um, you know, they said competition has increased. Um, and, and so basically they, they came, you know, slightly shy of what people were expecting on, on loan growth. And, uh, you know, we talk about some of the competition aspects later, but then uh, on the expense side, the expense side as well, they, they said, hey, you know, they were a little bit, you know, over what people expected, but, you know, they argue, hey, do you want us to stop investing in digital? Do you want us to stop investing in cyber? Yeah, we can do that for a quarter or two, but, you know, eventually down the line, we're going to get killed. So, you know, for me, looking at it holistically, um, you know, from the credit side, uh, the credit story is actually really clean across the board, right? And, and all these banks coming in with uh, maybe, you know, slightly lower than expected loan growth, um, especially more on the CNI side, which which is what the regional banks are, are, are known for, you know, versus consumer. And so that's why I think, you know, the whole, you know, uh, KBW, you know, regional bank index, which is more regional bank heavy, right. is, is getting hit, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at the KBW regional index and then the KBW just sort of bank index, and they're both off on a normalized basis year to date, about 7%. Ken, um, is there any bank that stands out to you as we talk about loan growth and sort of the quality of loans, um, a bank that you see as really prudent in terms of not sacrificing the quality of loans just in order to grow, but really being prudent for when the credit cycle turns? So on the results today, yeah, I would say um, – J.P. Morgan clearly has put quality, uh, in some cases sacrificing growth. Um, there isn't a distressed industry in the portfolios on the commercial industrial loan portfolio. There also is not any contagion from global risk. About 75% of revenue for J.P. Morgan comes from Europe and North America. The city has more of an emerging market risk exposure. And on the consumer side, it's a little more concentrated because it used to be four key drivers. Two are taken kind of off the table, auto loans and mortgages. Those are really declining bucks. So it's really about consumer loans and credit card. So far, those are good, but those are really critical uh, in order to have a positive view of the banks going into next year. Great stuff. Ken Leon, equity analyst over at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone from New York City. And Arnold Kakuda, our own Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on Banking and credit here with us in our studio. Thanks so much to both of you. I feel like our poor producer, Paul Brennan, has had to uh, go through his whole stable of uh, weed-related music, uh, given the cover story this week, Taylor. <laughs> uh, in Bloomberg Business Week, it's all about cannabis yeah. because we are on the verge of legalization federal legalization in canada coming into play next week fun package this week and sylvia killingsworth is here with us in our bloomberg interactive broker studio she has a great story that goes right to the heart of the investability right. of this industry sylvia great to have you with taylor and myself so break it down for us how are investors getting into this trend so it's a little tough still because um, these are unusual products and, you know, as you know, weed is not legal in the United States. So Canada has the first mover advantage here. So all of these 
companies that we're going to be talking about, most of them are big Canadian companies. Um, so many of them are many of them have you know traditional stock equity, but uh, they are also talking to banks. But it's really hard. You know, this is a new thing. Uh, people are wary. There's reputational risk. It's a sort of unknown quantity. So it's still really early days of this becoming like a real grown-up financial product. So talk to us about some of these companies because it was my chart of the week for our Bloomberg Business Week TV show, really looking at the market cap of these companies and then the investors in the companies Exactly. who, if you were an early investor, you're making some money. Yeah. You have seen over the past year, according to the uh, Bloomberg Intelligence kind of cannabis index, um, the market cap of all of those has gone up about 103% over about a year. Um, so it's really just skyrocketed. In the past couple of months especially, I think, leading into legalization, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of turmoil, there's a lot of what if. And I think the top three to know and the big names that I've been hearing over and over again are Tilray, Aurora, and Canopy Growth. And they've also seen... A lot of them have gotten investment or seen flirtations of investment from big beverage companies because that is kind of the big next big thing. Right. So let's talk about that because that is clearly what has gotten everybody's attention. You know, Constellation was the big headline grabber upping their investment into Canopy. Bruce Linton, the Canopy CEO, has been a, I feel like he's a frequent guest everywhere these days. Guys. Yeah. Ubiquitous, really making uh, his case, but it's gone beyond that. Coke has talked about yes. uh, doing something Pepsi, being a little more circumspect, and we've actually seen their stocks react based yes. on their plans or even their uh, considerations. So Absolutely. what happens next? So what happens next is probably more of the same. Um, more beverage companies getting into uh Canadian cannabis companies, but probably also when we've already started to see it, tobacco companies right. as well. So kind of other types of companies that are in in this industry of kind of regulated, legal only above a certain age kind of are in that market already. So we've already seen that with a couple of tobacco companies already. And in fact, a tobacco company recently, I forget which one, um, but I can tell you what its current name is, Pyxus, P-Y-X-U-S, which recently is a 145-year-old company and then kind of pivoted to pot basically and is now... Uh, you know, has it has it having a new life as a cannabis right. stock. It's amazing how, you know, sort of the rebranding and it does make me think of you mentioned this in our tease to makes me think a little bit of Bitcoin. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's being us, compared. Because we had a great terminal chart just to plug the Bloomberg there, mm -hmm. showing if you had looked at a bubble of Bitcoin that's popped, mm -hmm. you now have companies like Canopy Growth outperforming that. How nervous are investors that this might just be the next fad, so to speak? Absolutely. I think that's definitely a thing. It's an unknown quantity. Um, it's, it's a little bit like prohibition. No one really knows what's going to happen. I think it's going to be it's kind of take about you know half a year to a year to roll out to sort of see how how the market reacts but also how you know what is it? this is an entire country coming online is the supply chain even ready for this a lot of early reports are saying not quite that you know not everyone on day one is going to be able to go in and buy legal weed but i think a really interesting thing to watch is this sector of beverage and tobacco companies getting in because that's also i think how americans are going to start to see and experience legalized forms of cannabis right. or cannabis derived things so cbd and beverages is like already a hot thing already in the states um, um, and, you know, I think all of those companies, soft drink companies who are kind of seeing people go away into sparkling water are really looking for this next opportunity, their next big hit.
It's great stuff. Next big hit. I just want to point out Horizon's (laughs) investment, their marijuana ETF, is the second largest holder in Tilray. You're getting a very good performance over the last year. Yeah. In that ETF. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, a lot more to dig into in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. The new issue is out today. This story, Sylvia Killingsworth, fine work. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing us this story. And as Taylor mentioned, a lot more in our weekend show coming out tonight on Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Taylor Riggs. And Taylor uh, had the great fortune of being in London earlier this week at our Bloomberg Invest Conference had a great conversation, I thought, with Fabricio Campelli. He's the global head of wealth management at Deutsche Bank. And the question I posed to him, the whole point of the conversation was trying to understand people like you, millennials, how they want to invest their money. Here's what he had to say. Millennials is a perfect example. Uh, they are fundamentally different clients. They like to deal with us very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they favor different parameters and criteria in choosing a financial service provider. First of all, um, 70% of them um, choose uh, pricing and transparency as the key indicator of how to choose a bank to bank with. About half of them favor um, their bank based on the technological platform they uh, provide access to. And when they choose their suppliers so differently, we need to adapt our own uh, presence uh, right. enormously. And that consists of many two changes, the kind of people we put in front of them, but also the technology we engage them with. So what does that technology look like? I mean, I'm really interested in this technology piece because the, the sort of marriage of technology and the, the human component does feel especially important uh, to millennials. Exactly. So uh, this is very, very important. When you ask millennials, there are plenty of actually very recent studies trying to analyze uh, what is the role of a bank, and uh, particularly a wealth manager, the, the investment advisor, the relationship manager, in a relationship with a, a, a millennial? And it remains clear that they value very much um, the um, enormous role that a human being plays in giving them advice. Um, more than two-thirds of millennials still value the importance of an investment manager or an investment advisor educating them on financial services and financial products. More than 50% declare their preference to actually interacting with a human being rather than having a digital-only uh, interaction. In the wealth management segment, so when you go to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, less than 10% of millennials would say, I'm happy with a digital-only right. channel interacting with banks. So what is it then, this role of technology? It's not in substituting the wealth management traditional role in the way that we just heard for 25 years hasn't really changed. But it becomes a key driver in choosing which bank do you bank with. Because the technology that uh, these millennials are seeking have some characteristics in common. It creates enormous transparency on terms. Terms on pricing, performance terms, performance attribution, um, on the ability to choose between products. It creates enormous connectivity. Millennials are fundamentally networked people. And they favor tools that actually give them access uh, to the opinion of peers. So do you find them to be loyal customers, you know, especially vis-a-vis their parents or, or grandparents? Are they harder to hold on to or are they pretty loyal once you have them? The millennials. Well, they have a few characteristics that uh, we find, at least in our experience, uh, um, that uh, they, they all share. 
um, they value um, good performance um, and uh, they value transparency. And if you t tick those boxes, they tend to be loyal. You need to keep up your game on technology because as the user interface um, becomes more attractive somewhere else, you feel the pressure. Um, they tend to be endlessly um, in demand for data. Uh, right. They value information and data. Uh, they value the view of peers. So they become more loyal wow. to you if you can provide them access to peers and connectivity. And so when you start to get that feedback regularly and you see lightning striking always in the same spot, you need to respond. And as an open architecture firm, and regulation is making it easier for us to enforce a strict uh, open architecture mindset, if we don't have it in-house, we'll go and find it somewhere else. Right. And so are, is your bias toward partnering, toward acquiring, toward building quickly? What, where, where do you tend to make that decision? Um, there is no kind of uniform blueprint, but I can give you a bit of the sense of how we are dealing with this. On traditional banking service, anything which is truly technologically enhanced, we go and partner up with people who are better technologists than we will ever be as a bank. Mm -hmm. And the notion that banks can become technology companies is a bit misguided. You know, we are banks. We enjoy certain competitive advantages over some of the disruptors, which we want to build upon, but we will never be able to replicate the incredible effectiveness at developing um, and bringing to market uh, new technological ideas that some of these disruptors enjoy. So that's where we should really always draw uh, a line. Where we identify new product, new services, which may be adjacent to banking, which are relevant to millennials, we want to capture the competitive advantage and those we try to do ourselves. So for example, when we try to develop um, new client engagement modules, when we try to develop uh, um, new um, client uh, attribution or new um, online uh, uh, capabilities on how we engage clients on the distribution of research, we go and seek partnership support. When we try to develop core banking applications which give us the agility that particularly millennials require, we go and seek partnerships. For example, our main uh, IT partner for Deutsche Bank is Avalok. We didn't try to develop our core banking application ourselves outside of Germany. But when it comes to developing new solutions, new platforms, uh, new products that didn't exist before in the banking sphere, those we try to do ourselves, and we just support the specific capabilities that some suppliers may have um, in order to achieve the result. Mm -hmm. An example is uh, in Germany, Deutsche Bank has developed uh, something called Verimi. Uh, it's a digital identity platform with a partner, uh, partners all over the DAX uh, and, uh, and governments, which basically allows digital identity verification and a much safer way to identify yourself and log into government websites or company websites from Lufthansa to Deutsche Telekom to Deutsche Bank, um, as opposed to using Google or Facebook, with much higher protection of your data and a much higher safety standard uh, because it's actually the one dictated by regulation. So that brings me to one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about, which is both from the millennial perspective, from your millennial client perspective, and maybe even broadening it out to all of your clients, what are they most worried about? There's a, a sense of fear of missing out. Uh, this notion of being so networked and being exposed to so much of what our, your peer groups are doing, which is much more prevalent in millennials than in uh, um, Generation X and, and baby boomers, also means that when you see somebody doing really well, you're fearing that you're not doing as well if you don't participate. And we are really looking at this phenomenon because that's what's causing a lot of these millennials to actually explore non-banking partners in some of their um, financial uh, uh, service support. When you look at uh, social trading platform like eToro um, uh, or Estimize, you know, incredibly successful in their space, they really cater to this ability to say, 
look at how successful this investor was, you can be as successful by copying that strategy. But I have to say millennials are also aware of the fact that these are non-cycle tested ideas. These are startups, they were all born in the mid-2000s. Um, they were very young when the financial crisis happened, which gave them boost. But we haven't really seen how these portfolios and strategies perform in the event of a downturn. And I think that is the one thing that is still giving us an advantage. Millennials are afraid of um, what a sudden downturn could do. Interesting. And it's our big advantage. They do turn back to us for asking us a lot of advice, particularly on risk management. You didn't come to a wealth management discussion expecting to hear about FOMO. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. So that was my conversation uh, with Fabrizio Campelli of Deutsche Bank, Taylor, FOMO. Who knew that it played into the world of wealth management? You know, you millennials, you're a little bit predictable, I have to say. You know with these pesky millennials over here. millennials. That was Uh, a great interview. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to get that insight, especially from someone who has been doing this for a long time. You know, seeing the big banks, figuring out how to do this, especially in light of folks like Betterment. John Stein, we talked to on this show yesterday. Uh, It is, this is the greatest wealth transfer in history, and people are trying to take advantage of it. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Group. Well, you got to have something if you're starting a business, but our next guest has a little bit of a contrarian approach of sorts. That's Dilip Rao. He is professor of high-performance entrepreneurship and venture financing out at Stanford. More importantly, he's the author of a new book called Nothing Ventured, Everything Gained. He joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio out in San Francisco. Dilip, great to be with you. So the premise of this book is that Maybe venture capital isn't all that it's cracked up to be if you want to be a big-time entrepreneur. Tell us about this. Sure. Uh, just one correction. I'm a professor at Florida International. Oh, I'm sorry. I teach at Stanford, Harvard, and other places. I apologize. Uh, but yes, no problem. My new book, Nothing Ventured, Everything Gained, basically points out how did America's most successful entrepreneurs succeed. And even surprising to me, what I found out is that of them, over 9 out of 10, took off without venture capital. Uh, 18% got it later. 76% never got venture capital. So the question that I had was how did they grow? And what skills did they have? What strategies did they use? And that's what is in this book. Nothing ventured, everything gained. So, and tell us, you know, how do you do it without venture capital money? As you say, sort of... Everyone assumes that you need the money to get off and running and to get a business growing. How do you do it, if not for venture capital? Well, uh, sure. First of all, the misconception is that everybody gets venture capital. And the reality is that uh, uh, venture capital funds about 0.1%. So many people do build businesses without venture capital. But the PR with them is very high. How do you do it? Well, you need to have, A, the skills and the strategies. Let me talk about the four strategies that they used to take off. First is they find the right opportunity. And this is what I call capital smart opportunities, where you don't need a whole bunch of money to develop it. Uh, For instance, Bill Gates went and uh, bought a software for about uh, 100,000. Right. Uh, And uh, some of them, like uh, Earl Barkin, who built Medtronic, 
built the first cardiac pacemaker in six weeks. Richard Burke, who built United Healthcare, uh, was one of the people who wrote the legislation, so he knew how to organize United Healthcare. So these people had the skills to find the opportunity. They then developed the right strategy. Uh, we funded a few Walmart stores when Sam Walton was expanding. And what he did was absolute genius because he, instead of putting big stores in big towns, put it in small towns where Kmart and Target weren't there. And he convinced the world that you don't make much money there. And he was making money there. So you come up with the right strategy to take off. The third part is a difficult part, and that's a question. How do you find financing? I call it alt financing. Mm -hmm. And in all financing, you basically have to leverage your internal capital. You can't just say, let me just spend whatever I want to. This is where the skills come in. The skills come in is in finance skills. So you basically make sure that you focus your resources on the area where you can get competitive advantage and you bootstrap everywhere else. But what this also means is you find financing from every other source that you can get, which you control. And you get venture capital if you need it, only after they let you control the business. Mark Zuckerberg is the poster child for this. He got uh, angel capital and then venture capital, but they all let him run the business. He controls the business, even though he's a public company. Uh, and that's because they saw that they could make money at it, even by giving him control, because he had proven the opportunity in Facebook. And so is the, do you feel like this idea is, is catching on at all, uh, Delete? Because there is a lot of, as you say, sort of PR and, and the narrative around venture capital is that is the, the golden path forward to an IPO, uh, to an acquisition. It, it's intrinsic in the myth, as it were, uh, of Silicon Valley. Is this message resonating as you, as you talk to either students or, or other entrepreneurs out there? <laughs> Well, that is actually the $64 billion question. Uh, the reality is, I think, uh, once they listen to me and they're all skeptical at the start, right. and after about the first half an hour to 45 minutes, a few people start asking some intelligent questions. And I think the reality is that uh, it's like I'm, what I'm telling them is eat your spinach, do your homework, and study hard, and work, work, work. And what the lottery people are saying is buy a lottery. So venture capital is a lot like the lottery. You know, you hope you can get the money and all of a sudden somehow you build a billion-dollar business and you retire rich at 25. Right. And I'm telling them, no, it doesn't work for most people. One out of 100,000 is what it works for. I wrote a book called The Truth About Venture Capital. You can go to my website and get it for free. But it gives you all these statistics that basically says only a few people can get venture capital. So you need the skills. People right. need to study. And that's what business schools need to do. Very good. Well, we'll see if they start listening to you. Dilip Rao, professor of high performance entrepreneurship and venture financing. More importantly, the author of Nothing Ventured, Everything Gains, provocative idea uh, about how to raise money if you want to be a big, successful entrepreneur. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
And it is time for the drive to the close here on a Friday afternoon. Brian Gilday, Managing Director and Global Head of Investments at Hamilton Lane, also should point out, even though he lives near Villanova, he's a Georgetown Hoya, and that's why we like him so much. We're glad he is back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Hamilton Lane, of course, $470 billion uh, in assets. They are managing on behalf of a lot of big clients around the world. Uh, Brian, had the chance to catch up with Eric Hirsch, one of your colleagues, earlier today. You guys have a big market outlook out. I'm going to ask you a question that I know Taylor Riggs is going to like, volatility. Like, it is back in a big way uh, this week. How does that play into the broader investment thesis here? Yeah, so volatility is something that the private markets look forward to. I was talking to a manager yesterday who was literally licking their chops around the concept (laughs) of volatility. Um, I think one of the hardest things for the private markets is when the public markets are roaring and going one direction. It's just really tough to keep up. And so a little volatility makes it, uh, we we like that. Well, and it's so fun having you here because we spend all of our day talking about the public market. So I'm always curious, where is the money going in the the private markets? Where have you seen the flows? Where are you guys putting money to work? Sure. Um, I think part of what's happening in the private markets is it's going everywhere, actually. So traditional buyout strategies are growing. But also the number of strategies are expanding. So credit, private credit's a big trend you've you've probably heard a lot about. And infrastructure and real assets, as well as venture and growth, continues to be a very large area for investment. So talk about private credit, because I got into this a little bit this morning with Hirsch, because private credit, I feel like, is one of the biggest buzzwords on Wall Street right now. And the sense is, is that this is not a fad. This is a secular, not cyclical trend. Why? Yeah, we think so. Uh, part of it's regulatory-driven. The banks have moved out of the space. Um, but I think also, also it's been hard to find return in the public credit markets. And private credit has delivered really nice returns. It's still a fraction of the size of the broader credit markets. So it's been a good space. So funny. He went directly to private credit. My ears perked up when you said infrastructure. Because <laughs> last week, uh, I spoke with the former mayor of Philadelphia and the mayor of Syracuse. And they're all desperate for funds because they need some help from the private sector. They can't do infrastructure projects on their own. They're desperate for capital. Um, so what kind of infrastructure projects are getting done? Because I know, at least on the public side, they're sort of struggling to, to get the capital to put to work. Sure, yeah. So it's a little bit of everything. A lot of the energy-type uh, infrastructure projects have been, been big, also in the real asset space, real asset space, real estate, of course. One of the challenges with the public-private partnerships is just getting things done. So I think everyone's really excited about the opportunity set, but how do you make that come together to get the money to work in that area is a big question. Well, especially because it does feel like the investors that I talk to really carp a bit about the fact that this was a big promise from this current uh, administration. Big numbers thrown out there, trillion dollars, $1.5 trillion made available. A lot of money has been raised. It seems like the only money that's getting put to work, and Brian, keep us honest here, is the money that doesn't rely on sort of a public match or or sort of a PPP situation. Yes, I, I think you haven't seen a big shift in what infrastructure investing is yet. I think the hope is that some of that is on the come if you can figure out the way to get things done there. That's right. Since we talk about um, the current administration, another thing popped out to me in your note that your recession risk is 0%, but a Trump-adjusted recession risk is 20%. How did you come to that number? Well, this may be a little bit more scientific than the exact way we thought about it. Uh, we, we do try to be thoughtful about these things. I think the point there was just that there's some uncertainty beyond the normal uh, economic environment. The economic indicators all feel good to us, 
but creating volatility or uncertainty just could have impacts in things like trade wars or other areas that might cause uh, changes we don't see. So, Brian, you mentioned at the top of the conversation that money is going just about everywhere. Uh, and part of that is driven by the fact that there is a huge amount of money that continues to pour into alternatives and specifically private equity. And that leads to, you know, the dreaded question around dry powder measured in trillions of dollars. How quickly is that getting put to work? How much do your clients worry that that will ultimately weigh on returns because people are going to have to put that money to work, settle for returns that maybe they don't like? Yeah, that's a great question. So the headline number is big, right? It's $2 trillion of dry powder out there. But to your point, we look at how quickly that could get invested in the current environment. It's about three years. That's about average. So actually, wow. our clients look at that and say, hmm, feels like we're right where we should be on a metric like that. How concerned are you right now? We always hear about the late stage of the economic cycle, late stage of the credit cycle. How concerned are you um, where we are in the economic cycle that that could impact your business or make people nervous? Or is that an opportunity for you? Uh, it's a little bit of both, but we, we just make sure people stay conservative and thoughtful and um, aren't, aren't doing things that are outside of their normal comfort zone at this stage in the cycle. So be disciplined, stick to what you do well, don't stretch in an environment like this for sure. So we talked about private credit. You mentioned sort of traditional buyouts at the top. Private equity has become much more uh, sophisticated, much more specialized over time. As you go down a level, what sort of strategies are drawing the most capital either within the bigger shops or within the sort of specialty uh, private equity firms? Who, who's winning the most dollars? So um, really the industry, as you just said, has become sliced very thinly. So we, we'll see a thousand funds this year. So you really can pick any kind of sector that you like. The big funds are expanding into all different kinds of strategies. I would say it's across the board, though, in terms of where the money is going. The big are certainly getting bigger, representing more of the capital overall. But there are also plenty of new strategies that are being launched that are targeting specialized sectors or niches in the market as well. Um, yeah, and just quickly, we only have a minute left. You talk a little bit about tech and some of the venture investing here. Are you seeing the same amount of money being allocated to IT and tech the way we did in, in the dot-com bubble? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So the private market's exposure to tech is not anywhere near what it is in the public markets. It's a very big difference um, relative to that prior time frame. So it's actually something some investors are trying to figure out how to get more private markets exposure into the space, but also... You've seen a big run-up in the tech in the public markets, and so you wonder how that will weigh ultimately in the private markets. Uh, there's been a lot of unrealized performance there, but how will that come back, and what will that mean for investors? Great stuff. Brian Gilday, Managing Director, Global Head of Investments down at Hamilton Lane, based outside of Philadelphia, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always good to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio Radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.